the, you know, uh, the best kind of stories are underdog stories. It's such a rush to witness things that uh, seemingly are impossible. Now, you probably don't want to hear about my favorite underdog story, being that this is New York, I'm from New England, uh, so I, I won't tell you about the 2001 Patriots and how they uh, were 14-point underdogs to the St. Louis Rams, the greatest show on turf, uh, and how they, they beat them in Super Bowl 36. Uh, what an what a incredible game that was. I'll spare you that story this morning, and I'll tell you this one instead. Uh, maybe you'll relate more to this one. The 1980 Olympics and the Miracle on Ice where uh, the United States hockey team, severe underdogs, weren't they? Made up mostly of amateur and college players. The average age of the the team was 22 years old, going up against, in the semifinals, this juggernaut Russian hockey team that had won gold in the last four Olympics. And here they are, uh, truly a David and Goliath story. And they win four to three in a truly a dramatic come-from-behind victory uh, over the Russians in the semifinals and, of course, go on to win gold that year. We love underdog stories, don't we? We love witnessing the unexpected, the cast-offs, doing what people say cannot be done. And our God is a God who loves to show off. He loves to show off and do the unexpected, using the most unlikely people to accomplish his Purposes. And we're going to see this in our text today, God using the unlikely to do the unexpected for the undeserving. Today's scripture passage is an interesting one, I got to tell you. It's a story uh, that uh, I don't know if most of us have ever heard a sermon preached on this particular passage before, and you'll see maybe why in a, in a moment. You know, it, there's a trend in our culture where, you know, Hollywood likes to make movies about biblical things, you know, uh, and, and there's kind of faith-based movies coming out all the time. Well, I got to say, if, if there were a movie made about today's passage, a lot of you parents probably wouldn't let your kids see it. You know, there's, there's just those things in the Bible that, you know, are a little uh, above PG-13, uh, and we think to ourselves, you know, what, what, is, what is this doing here? What is, what is this, uh, how is this supposed to apply to my life? But I want to remind you this morning that this is the Word of God. It is in your Bibles. And remember what the New Testament says about the Word of God. It says that all of it, Catch that word, all. All of it is useful for teaching, right? So there is something for us to learn here. All of it is useful for teaching, and all of it points to Jesus. Jesus says, all of the scriptures point to me. And so we're invited to, to look into even a text like this and to discover where does this point to Jesus and what does this have to teach me? Now, other passages in the Bible are maybe a little bit uh, more low-hanging fruit when it comes to application. Maybe you think of the Gospels or some of Paul's epistles. Uh, Not so much here. It's not low-hanging fruit. We're going to have to do some work. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and do some digging. But there are some gems here, and I want you to see them uh, in all their splendor. So let's get to the text now. I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 to 31. 
If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 238. And once you're there, uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as the Word of God is read out of reverence and, and respect for the Word of God. We're thankful, of course, that God still speaks today through his word. Let's hear it together as I read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushath, Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. And so, the Lord had, or, and so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of, of, of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the cool, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, his, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the, in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He who had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. 
When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the two-edged sword of your word open our hearts this morning. May the Holy Spirit reveal to us our deep need for a Savior in the beauty of Christ, the only Savior we need. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I told you it would be an interesting passage. Am I wrong? Am I right? We try to impress upon our kids not to use potty humor, and yet here we have it, and God's word may be the gold standard of, of potty humor here, especially verses 15 to 25. So what are we looking at? What do we have here? We've spent two weeks now uh, working uh, through the introduction of Judges, uh, chapters uh, 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, and now uh, we come to uh, the first of three Judges here in, in chapter 3 through the end. We see Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And the presentation of these three Judges uh, shows us how God raises up deliverers for his people. And we're going to see here in this text something of the character of God and how he delights to rescue his people. And so I've got three points this morning. The first is the expected Savior. The second is the unexpected Savior. And then finally, an unexpected people. Okay? So first, uh, we begin with Othniel, Verses 7 through 11, we see here the pattern or the cycle that was laid out for us uh, at the beginning of Judges come to life and align quite perfectly here. The, the cycle is being worked as, as we're told. Uh, it's, everything is uh, going according to plan as expected from what we're told in the introduction. The people forget the Lord. They uh, do evil against the Lord by worshiping false gods of the Canaanites. The anger of the Lord is, uh, is kindled and he gives them into the hand uh, of the king of Mesopotamia for eight years. Uh, the people cry out. The Lord raises up Othniel who defeats the king uh, and the land has rest for 40 years and then Othniel dies. Okay, That's the cycle. This plays out exactly how one would expect. Not much is said about Othniel. Nothing negative is mentioned about him or his character, especially when compared to many of the other judges that we'll see uh, to come. And Othniel is the kind of judge that Israel would expect. He's the expected uh, man for the job. Uh, First, he was a warrior from a faithful family. We're briefly introduced to Othniel in chapter 1 where he, he conquers that city and Caleb uh, gives his daughter in marriage to him. 
He, he rewards faithfulness. Uh, and then he's also from the tribe of Judah, uh, who were the first chosen by God to go in and take possession of their inheritance. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to defeat King Cushan, Rishathaim. That's a mouthful. I was hoping I'd get through that this morning when I was reading the text earlier. There's a, there's a bunch of uh, uh, references to his name. Now, this king was likely no pushover, making Othniel's victory that much more spectacular. This is likely not the king's real name. It's probably a nickname. His name means double wickedness. Double wickedness. You see, when people couldn't throw off the, uh, the oppression of their enemies uh, and they're subdued uh, to them, what more could they do but make up derogatory nicknames, right? So this perhaps is a nickname that the people of Israel gave to this king. Double wickedness. Now, in this group of three judges, Othniel serves as a literary foil. You know what that is? A foil is a, a character that creates a contrast to the one uh, that, that follows. Okay? Uh, and so, when it comes to uh, the contrast here uh, between Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, uh, we're going to see contrasting uh, characters. Okay? So what we're meant to see is that Othniel, in many ways, is the ideal judge. He's the expected judge. And then he provides the contrast to Ehud and Shamgar, who come next. Uh, Not the guys anyone would have expected to be used by God to rescue his people. So let's look at this under our second point now. The unexpected Savior. Now, I know I'm going a little out of order here, but I'm going to skip to the end, and we're going to talk about Shamgar briefly before we get to Ehud. Okay? Uh, Shamgar, he, he, he's, a, he's one of the 12 judges, but he gets one verse, okay? He's, he's got one verse here, but there's, there's something for us here, for sure. Uh, we know very little about Shamgar, but what we do know is this, that his name is not an Israelite name. And so for that reason, many uh, Bible scholars think that uh, Shamgar is not even an Israelite, that perhaps he's a, he's a foreigner, okay? Not someone that Israel would expect to be their deliverer, to rescue them from oppression. This is not the guy that was expected. Uh, secondly, we're told that Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You might be thinking, what's an ox goad? Okay, well, first of all, uh, it's, it's a very unconventional weapon. It's not really a weapon at all. And this tells us that Shamgar uh, is probably a farmer, and an ox goat is a, a long pole with a pointy end that you would prod the oxen with to, to move them along. Now, what's likely going on here is that uh, under the oppression of their enemies, they're probably not allowed to have conventional weapons. And so Othniel, you know, he, he uses what he's got, right? He, he uses what he has. And the point here is that God loves to use unexpected people, even farmers, Foreign farmers with unexpected tools like Shamgar. God loves to use unexpected people with unexpected tools. Matthew Henry comments on on this and he says, It doesn't matter how weak the person or how weak the weapon is if God strengthens and directs the arm. This is often how God chooses to work. It's in unlikely ways uh, that he gets to show off the excellency of his power. 
So while Othniel is the, the contrasting foil that precedes Ehud, Shamgar is the brief one-verse exclamation point that follows at the end. So now we turn our attention to Ehud. Why is he so unexpected? First, consider what we learn about him uh, toward the end of verse 15. Uh, he's a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. That's an interesting detail to include, isn't it? You know, a left-handed man. What's, what's that about? Now, there is uh, some crazy irony here that's missed because of the English translation, and I'll explain. First, this phrase, left-handed man, literally means one who cannot or is unable to use his right hand. By the way, do we have any lefties here? This is like your, ver- this is your passage. You know, there's like two of you out there. Three? Nice? All right. Uh, so if you ever wondered, is there anything in the Bible for lefties? Here it is. Uh, but left-handed man, he, he's a man who's not able to use his right hand. Now, many translators make the decision to simply call Ehud left-handed, uh, but what this misses is the fact that Ehud was likely unable to use his right hand because of maybe some deformity or disability that he had. Now, add this to the fact, here's the irony, right? Uh, add this to the fact that uh, right-handed people were far more common then uh, as they are today, And think of the biblical significance of right-handedness, right? Uh, God in Isaiah 62 is said to swear by his right hand. Psalm 16 says that it's at the, uh, it's that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 110 says that God's chosen one sits at his right hand. Paul and Barnabas were offered the right hand of fellowship in Galatians 2.9. And since most people were right-handed, they fought with their right hand. And so the right hand uh, became a symbol uh, of power and strength. So understand what verse 15 is saying. God has raised up a deliverer to save his people who is, in the eyes of the world, weak and impotent. Not what's expected. Now, there's even more irony here because... The meaning of the word Benjaminite is fascinating when combined with this detail about Ehud not being able to use his right hand because a Benjaminite literally means son of my right hand. If you didn't think the Bible has humor, here it is. Son of my right hand. So here we're being introduced to Ehud, the son of my right hand who cannot use his right hand. We might say that this is the son of power who is powerless. How embarrassing. All this makes Ehud a very unexpected choice to deliver Israel. Now Ehud is, is sent to bring tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who we're told, uh, again, this is another interesting detail, we're told he's a very fat man. And this is ironic because his name literally means young or tiny bull. And yet, he's a very fat man. Now, it, it may be that he's fat because the tribute that he's collecting is probably food from Israel. So he's, he's oppressing Israel, uh, taking their food, uh, and uh, being gluttonous with it. Uh, Ehud, we're told, makes a homemade sword with two edges. Not common in the Bible to have a sword with two edges. Most swords had one edge. Uh, they weren't for for stabbing or or piercing. They were for swiping, right? 
uh, and a sword with two edges is only mentioned a few times in the Bible. Remember this, because I'm going to come back to that later. Ehud then uses deception, promising a special special message from God uh, to gain a private audience with the king. Now with his sword strapped to his right thigh, the weapon likely went unnoticed because the more common righties would have had strapped their sword to their left thigh. And for the king to even agree to be left alone with Ehud assumes that uh, the king thought Ehud couldn't wield a sword at all and that uh, he saw no threat from this crippled man. So he lets him in. Now here's where things get weird. This rooftop chamber is most likely a bathroom. And we know from archaeology that homes of the wealthy often had bathrooms on the roof so that as things go down the way they do, uh, to the lower level, servants would take care of that. Uh, So here Ehud is standing alone with the king in his bathroom on his other throne. This king, or this kind of privacy is... uh, shocking to us, but in the ancient world, uh, privacy was a little bit different than it is today. And then we're told Ehud plunges his blade into the fat king and his fat closes over the handle of the sword. And we're told uh, his, uh, this delightful detail that the dung came out. Uh, this does help explain, though, why his servants didn't come in. They probably could smell the smell and uh, contributed to them assuming that he was using the bathroom. So they didn't go in. Don't miss the humor on all this. This is satire. This is historical satire in the Bible playing out uh, before us this morning. By definition, a satire is the use of humor, irony, or ridicule to expose people's stupidity. But the stupidity that's being exposed is the Israelites. Think about it. Israel was so impressed, so enamored with the fake gods of the Canaanites that they abandoned the Lord, the one true God, and served these idols, these fake gods. And God wants to show them how foolish that was. So God gives them into the hand of Eglon, even taking possession of the city of Palms, which is another name, by the way, for a city you're probably more familiar with, the city of Jericho. Israel's first major victory as they went in to take possession of the promised land. This was a major blow to their pride as they abandoned the Lord their God, as they worshipped the false gods of the Canaanites. Uh, they lost this, this prized city uh, they came to be under the oppression uh, of, the, uh, of this king and his people. And then we're told that Israel was oppressed by Moab for 18 years. 18 years. Unable to do anything about it, but for God, and here's, here's the, the satire here, but for God, all it took was a cripple who couldn't use his right hand and a makeshift sword and a thinly uh, veiled ruse. That's all it took to free Israel from 18 years of oppression from the Moabites. Don't miss that this satire is intended to show off the glory of God against the backdrop of the foolishness of, of the people. Church, hear me. Sin always makes us foolish. 
Listen to how Paul, the Apostle Paul, explains this in Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In exchange the glory of God, for uh, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Isn't this the case when we go against God's ways, God's good ways? It's because we think that we know better. That's one of the things that sin does. It causes us to think that we know better than God how to make ourselves happy. We claim to be wise, but really, in doing so, we become fools. And that's what sin does to us. And so Paul in Romans 1 goes on to say, in the very next verse, that God gave us over. Sounds like the book of Judges, doesn't it? He gives us over to the slavery and oppression of sin and death, which leads to suffering and misery. Now here's some application for today. Our world is very familiar with suffering. Raise your hand if, you've, if suffering has touched you in some way in, in your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, Come on, we should see more hands than that. Yeah, suffering is all around us, right? Uh, and even if it hasn't touched you personally, it will. If you haven't seen it yet, you can see it on the news and online. Our world is no stranger to suffering, and, and a large part of it is self-inflicted by sinful choices because we seek to find happiness apart from God, and in doing so, we become fools. Think about this for a moment. March is Women's History Month. And we live in a world that doesn't know or is confused about what a woman is. And of course, as we look around at the problems and the, the suffering in our world, most people expect the solutions to come from better laws, different Supreme Court judges, better education, different political leaders, those are the things that are expected, that people look to to make lasting change in our world. You might be familiar with this uh, the story of a, a man. It's kind of a parable. I don't think this actually happened. But a man in a flood, and as the waters are rising, he prays to God and says, God, rescue me from this flood. And so a man comes by on a canoe and says, hop in. He says, no thanks, I prayed to God, he's going he's gonna to rescue me. So the water rises, he gets to the second floor of his house because uh, the water is so high and another guy comes by on a Coast Guard rescue boat. He says, get on in, I'm here to rescue you. And he says, no, I prayed to God, God's going to rescue me. And so the waters rise even higher, now he's on his roof and a helicopter comes by and says, hey, I'm here to rescue you, hop on. He says, no, thank you. I've prayed to God. God is going to rescue me. The waters rise even higher. The man drowns. And he stands before God. And he says, God, what happened? I thought you were going to rescue me. He says, yeah. I sent a canoe. I sent a Coast Guard rescue boat and a helicopter. What more do you need? The point is, sometimes we expect certain things to be uh, our deliverer, right? Or certain people or certain things. 
We expect certain things, but it's God who sometimes sends the unexpected that's in plain sight. And I want to remind you that in an election year, that it's God who raises up and tears down kings, even double wicked kings. And he uses them for his purposes. And so may we not be uh, like the world that is uh, devastated or elated uh, by the results of elections, right? Certainly, you know, be good citizens and, and stewards of, of voting according to your consciences. Uh, but when it doesn't go your way, it shouldn't devastate us. Because we know that all these things are in the hands of the Lord. I mean, look, look at verses 7 through 11 in Othniel's story. It, it's the Lord that is doing all those things. The Lord raised up King Double Wickedness. And it was the Lord who brought him down. And the Lord used him for his purposes. The Lord uses double wicked kings. He, he uses them. So pray for your leaders as we did this morning, as, as I let us, pray for your leaders, even those who are clearly broken. But true rescue and deliverance doesn't come from the place where people expect to find it today. True deliverance. What does God do? God raises up for us a deliverer who is in every way more perfect than Othniel appears to be on the pages of Judges. And at the same time, he's the ultimate unexpected lefty. He's unexpected. He's, he's the lefty like Ehud. Listen to how Isaiah describes Jesus in chapter 53, verse 3. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't, you know, the, the, the good-looking king everyone was looking for. Isaiah goes on and says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was the ultimate unexpected deliverer. And in the Gospels, the Jews rejected Jesus because they were looking for a military leader, someone to drive out the Romans. And all the while they were blind and foolish to a far greater oppressor than Rome could ever be. Their deepest need was to be delivered from the oppression of sin and death. Ehud went alone into the foul bathroom of King Eglon and defeated him by his weakness. Jesus, the ultimate lefty, faced death for us all alone on a foul cross. And in his weakness, in the weakness of his death, he delivers his people from slavery to sin. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, delivering, crushing defeat to death itself. This is the kind of savior that God has given to the world. One who looks uh, foolish in the eyes of the world, but is really the wisdom and power of God. Listen to how Paul describes him 
At 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Jesus has already secured final victory by his death and resurrection for you. He stands now ready to forgive all who call on him in faith. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, we were promised. In all these ways, the story of Ehud points to Jesus. But it also points to all of us. This is my final point, an unexpected people. God uses a left-handed savior to save a left-handed people. The people that God delivered through Ehud weren't winning any beauty contests. They abandoned the Lord. They did what was evil in his sight. They worshipped false gods who were no gods at all. Why in the world would God want to save such people? If he were to do what we would expect, he would wipe them all out. Because he... But he doesn't because he's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's not a God of performance. He delights to save and work through people who are on the margins of his society, physically, socially, mentally weak, even uh, morally questionable people. The people that uh, often get looked down upon, the homeless, the addicted, These are the lefties that he he sets his rescuing love on. Why? Why does he do it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, as he continues, he says uh, to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God loves using an underdog. So many people believe that they need to turn over a new leaf, get on the right path, before God will consider saving them. But all this does is treat God like one of the Canaanite false gods. Coming to God, seeking to make a deal. If I scratch your back, will you scratch my back? I'll do this for you, God, but I want you to do this for me. That's how the Canaanite gods worked. Make a little sacrifice here, get a little something in return. That is not how our God works. The problem is that sin only makes us foolish But it also makes us blind. Sin causes you to believe that you're not an underdog, that you're not a lefty. You believe the best about yourself generally. And when we think about our standing before God, we might might deceive ourselves into thinking, you know, we're not that bad. We just need a little help, maybe, you know. Jesus came to give me a little lift, you know, and, and I can handle the rest by myself. All I need to do is turn over a new leaf, Be a little bit better. Be a little bit nicer. The solution, though, the solution 
is that the double-edged sword must be turned on us. A lot of you are probably familiar with Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Remember I said earlier, uh, there aren't very many references to two-edged swords in the Bible. Well, here's another one. And I never considered this before studying this passage in the way I did uh, last week. But I never considered that Ehud's blade was a reference here in Hebrews 4.12, but I think that it is, and it's not a stretch. Let me explain. The author of Hebrews often writes in a historical, chronological style. He makes his points by working his way chronologically through portions of the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to read to you the context of Hebrews 4.12, and it hopefully will become quite clear to you. Uh, Starting in verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For... The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice a few things here about this passage. First, he starts off by talking about Joshua. Joshua immediately proceeds judges. Secondly, Judges is all about God's people failing to find God's promised rest in the promised land because of their disobedience. All these things are mentioned here in Hebrews 4. And then we come to this teaching that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, a sword that pierces to the core of our being. Our translation says that it discerns our hearts, but the NIV actually uses the word judges The word of God judges our hearts. And this judgment leaves us open. It leaves us vulnerable, naked and exposed before the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. This wound will condemn you, but it can also save you. Because it's only by this wound that you can learn of your undeserving left-handed condition and your need for someone to save you. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And this is a faithful wound by a loving God. God's word is clear. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword that will pierce you, it will judge you, it will condemn you. And the only deliverance is to look to the unexpected left-handed Savior, Jesus who was pierced and judged and condemned for all of you and me and for the world. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you and heal you because he's the only one who's paid for your disobedience by dying and rising again for you. If you've never trusted Jesus to forgive you, then what are you waiting for?
What are you waiting for? Stop trying to make deals with God. Stop trying to turn over a new leaf. Stop trying to be uh, better and nicer. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his forgiveness. In closing, I ask, ask yourself, church, in what ways do you need to be reminded of your left-handed condition? How is it that you are undeserving? And then when you see that, marvel at the grace of God for you. Marvel at the grace of God. And remember, as you consider the problems of our world, the ultimate solution is not out there. It's the double-edged sword of the word of God, the good news of Jesus that will help people to understand their need for a savior. And may we not only proclaim this, but remember it for our own sake. The unexpected beauty of the grace of God given through the ultimate left-handed savior for an undeserving left-handed people. May your hearts dance at this news and run to him singing nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our savior. Thank you for displaying the wisdom and power of God by coming in weakness, not in power like the rest of the world expected and was looking for. Father, I pray that your word would further open all of our hearts here this morning, especially those who came here unaware of their need for a savior. We pray that your, your word would, be a, would, would deal us a faithful wound that it would open us up and cause us to be made aware of our, of our left-handedness, of our need for a Savior. And Father, we thank you for Jesus, the perfect and only Savior that we all need. We pray that the news of his uh, rescue in our own lives would bring us great joy and delight that would spill over into sharing this news with others. And Father, as we look around at our world today and see the mess that it is, help us not to place our confidence in the things of this world, but in the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.